Hello and welcome to Multilingual Love, a podcast about multilingual couples hosted by me, Flo de Schlichting. This week, I'm joined by Mayan and Gerolamo, who will be chatting about how they communicate in a non-exclusive, multilingual relationship. So my name is Mayan and I speak English and Hebrew. My name is Gerolamo and I speak Italian, French, English and Spanish. For the sake of the audience, could you describe your relationship to me? I guess... Big question. Huh? It is a really big question. Mm. And a sensitive one because we... We often struggle to know whether we call each other boyfriend and girlfriend. And generally we just stick to the term lover, which is very, very like romantic. That term, or a squeeze. <laughs> a squeeze. <laughs> that didn't go down very well. I used a back accident one time and you'll never let me forget it. <laughs> is that how you introduce yourself? <laughs> I said, this is my current squeeze. <laughs> what did they say? <laughs> I mean... So my friend was like, oh, right. Jello didn't say anything. And then later he was like, I'm your squeeze, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I know you were just trying to be cool in front of your friends. <laughs> we're trying to be friends. <laughs> He's also my neighbor. <laughs> Which does not complicate things at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so simple. You both speak multiple languages. You communicate in English. How is that for both of you? I mean, it's easy for me. I wouldn't say it's a problem where there are certain things in the way we understand each other that could be limited by the language we use. So we do communicate mainly in English. I was going to say it's a language that I never use to express my feelings. But now I'm also wondering what other languages I did use to express my feelings. I'm not that sure. <laughs> Sometimes we play around and speak French when we're being silly. Angelo tried to teach me some Italian when we're being very, very silly. The French thing, yes, it is in moments where, uh, where, we're, where we're just being in a very silly mood. But the atmosphere that we create when I teach you a sentence or uh, an Italian phrase... Uh, there's something special to it. It's true. Mm. Is it easy for you to be precise with your emotions in English? I'm not sure I've ever managed in any language in a certain way to communicate them. And it's something you learn. And I guess like what's interesting, I'm learning it through a second language, not my mother tongue, mm. which maybe also could make it more difficult. Sometimes the way I think about it, when I've tried to understand what's going on my mum who grew up with Tagalog and Ilocano and English she often finds it difficult for various reasons to give words to her feelings even though she's an incredibly articulate woman and she's a writer and is very good with words but finds it very difficult to attach words to the feelings that she has which obviously often makes things quite difficult but One of the things she tells me is, and she speaks English as a as a mother tongue, she went to international school, but she often says, but English is my second language. And what I've come to understand, it's not so much that she's not fluent in English, it's that it literally her the language she spoke with her mother, the language which gave her an emotional vocabulary, was one that she actually didn't get from her mum. 
so they spoke in Tagalog and they spoke in Lokano, but they actually didn't speak about emotions. So she just didn't get an emotional language. And sometimes I think whether the fact that she moved around a lot at very significant moments as a child, whether that affects the kind of emotional language that you have or the kinds of words you're able to give your feelings. Yeah, you're right. It's not so much about this fluency thing, very much what sort of emotional talk you've been exposed to. Mm. And if something seems very removed from you, I can imagine it makes it more difficult. Jada's parents are very comfortable in Italian. Mm -hmm. And and obviously, I mean, they're Italian. <laughs> But my parents are so mixed and both my parents grew up in kind of multilingual households. And I guess both of them really struggle with an emotional vocabulary. I feel like that's not something I grew up with. They also don't speak such idiomatic English right? because they both learned English in quite odd ways, even though it's their mother tongue. But it's definitely not idiomatic British English for sure. Often we, we talk about it and it's not strictly my fluency in English as opposed to Jero's. It's kind of this emotional vocabulary. It was really, it was a hard one. It was a real kind of practice to find, you know, words and comfort with with sharing emotions in that way. I mean, part of that is obviously my parents' personality, but mm. I think, you know, I've started to take seriously what my mom says and it's true. There's a certain quality to the way she speaks which is her using English as a second language and as a second emotional language as opposed to a second language of fluency by now my mom's no longer fluent in Hebrew but we sometimes speak in Hebrew but then my parents also speak Japanese and they speak Japanese to my brother and so each person in the family sometimes gets left out out of some kind of conversation <laughs> so what's your common language Definitely English. English. But, and my parents used to try and speak Japanese just between them. They both went to university in Japan and lived there for a long time. And my older brother grew up there. Each person in my family has a different accent and <laughs> was born or raised in a different place. How is that for you in terms of identity? I mean, part of that is, is definitely with language. And it feels quite nice to move into different languages and feel like you're moving into different identities. To me, that feels quite nice. But I think also for me, it was also just looking different, that every place I grew up in, I looked different to everyone else. Yeah, that feeling of not belonging was also just being a part of a very mixed race family. And I guess I've just gone very anthropologist about it. It used to really bother me. And, you know, people kept asking like, well, where do you feel at home? And what do you think your identity is? And that, these days I find it less of a question of, I don't know, some inherent state and much more about well, I have the capacity to feel at home in a number of places and have the capacity to pass, you know, linguistically or culturally in a number of places, even if appearance-wise. I just don't look like any of the places I'm from. <laughs> have you met each other's family? How would you explain your relationship to them or would you just kind of out of comfort be like, this is my partner? I think my parents wouldn't ask, but my granny would ask. My granny always asks. The last time I introduced a partner to my granny, she said, Is this your husband? <laughs> she said, I, I don't get it. Are you, are you friends? Do you have sex? Do you enjoy it? <laughs> she waited till my parents were out of the room. <laughs> And then I said, oh, I'm going to go to the toilet. <laughs> In my family, there's always been like... A, a lot of unsaid about relationships. 
my grandmother, for some reason, how free of mind she was and stuff like that, she couldn't stand to hear that one of her nephews had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Mm. Because in Italian you say fidanzato, which is a translation of fiancé. But that became like today the contemporary way of saying boyfriend or girlfriend, fidanzato, fidanzato. And she couldn't bear that. And so she's like, I'm really happy if you're enjoying yourself, (laughs) but please refer to whoever you're enjoying yourself as a friend. (laughs) (laughs) I think she couldn't stand the meaning of that word and what probably it meant to her. Mm. For her, like, it meant commitment. When we talked about our intimate relationships, we would always refer the person or the partner we were with as a friend. And for some reason, it it was always like this with the rest of my family. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, It's the way, it's the tonality used by saying friend. I'm having a friend coming over. I'm having... A friend coming over. <laughs> me. Yeah, I guess with my family, we, we, we don't go into those kinds of details. Mm. And they don't ask. <laughs> We're that kind of family. I know you've been seeing other people romantically throughout your relationship. How do you communicate that? I guess we're figuring it out. So it's a learning curve. I mean, it's tricky because the feedback you have is an emotional one and it can often be a painful one. So those are the parameters you're working with. Sometimes, I guess one person says, okay, I'd be happy with this if you say X, Y, and Z, and then we do X, Y, and Z, and then we discover there's, there's still something painful there. So we actually didn't get the X, Y, and Z right. So then we try and refine it. And then we do it again, and then someone gets upset, and then we try and refine it some more, and... We get upset often at the end, no matter what <laughs> but, you do. But the, but the amazing thing is, is that, one, I don't think it's necessarily more than in other relationships I've had, which are monogamous. But the other really interesting thing is that when we get it right, sometimes when we've shared those moments of being with other people, those are the times where we've come t- to feel closest to each other. And having that space to just fully be... I don't know, there's something about just being accepted for exactly as it is, you know, and not having this good and bad narrative, which is so liberating and makes me feel so close. It's been really amazing. Is that the first relationship you have under that sort of definition? No, but I don't think in the other ones, when that was shared, that it developed a closeness. I think that's what was so surprising about it. I, I came with some experience of what goes wrong and what can make it go right already. Yeah, for me, it was all very novel. I really didn't know how I was going to feel about Mayana having other relationships. I guess there was something that I felt very comfortable about. Also, the fact that Mayana already had like experiences in the past seemed to already have an idea of how these relationships could be possible. I was entering an unknown territory of relationships. So at the beginning, it was just like listening and seeing and I'm trying to understand theoretically. Can we call it strategies of how you handle these moments? Seemed 
all very clear, fun, which is very different from from when it actually happens. And that's when you actually start to understand if it's something that you may accept or not. What I love about it that I'm not saying it didn't come without struggle. I feel also accepted on my wants, my desire. And I also arrived to a point where I accept as well all the all the desires that Mayan has in building other relationships. It just became much softer. But there's also some other context to that. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation that we often have, that it's not a sort of a classic polyamorous setup in that I'm not strictly trying to find other people to kind of meet, I don't know, other desires I've got. But I think that I am older than Jero. And I guess the desire is that I want to set up a family. And this is quite a painful situation that I don't think we can do that together. And so it's this knowledge that I'm slightly in a rush. I feel the... The pressure, whether it's true or not, it's this kind of biological pressure that I, if I want to set up a family, I need to actually get on with it. So it's trying to still keep the possibility open to find someone. It's actually, it looks like dating, but actually without desire, which is a slightly strange twist in the tale. You were talking about strategies and rules earlier, and I'm quite interested in these and what they were, and, and what the communication around those was. I thought you were going to remember. I do remember. I wanted to see what you remember. <laughs> How far in advance I had to set this one up. <laughs> yeah, there was a series of things that I found to work in the past. That was a result of a long discussion with a previous partner, which we found sort of helped in various ways. So, for example, you're not supposed to talk badly about your partner to the person that you're about to sleep with. And you also have to mention that you love them. Just as a way to make sure that, one, that the the third person knows, but also that the partner who's left out doesn't feel like that third person is coming between the two of us. There was also something just around safety, kind of basic safety, obviously using protection, but also it meant kind of no oral sex by default. There were various things about kind of at what stage you tell the other person. Do you tell them in advance or do you tell them afterwards or actually do you kind of leave it until you're face to face and these kind of things. But I guess in previous iterations, I've had like a whole list of rules and they worked really well. But the kind of most important one was basically that I found that worked really well was that if a partner is letting me be with someone else, then they must never feel like they're getting less. So if you make that sacrifice to a partner and you let them have this exploration and this freedom, then the time in which my self-worth feels impacted is when I feel like somehow I'm made lesser than this person they've just met. And that became the kind of guiding principle between us, which we've managed to fulfill to various degrees. <laughs> I also think we should point out, because this is a podcast, that Jedo is an incredibly beautiful man. <laughs> and I love him very much, I'm not going to reuse the same word. She's the most special person. Uh. <laughs> I love your smile. <laughs>
the, I just have a kind of a last question. How do you communicate that to others, as in people you see romantically? Oh, good question. From my experience, I communicated at the very beginning and tried to understand if the other person was okay with it. So what do you say? If there was consent. I know it's a phrase that we constantly hear today when it's like, we should be honest with each other. And what I figured is that it's so difficult to be honest. It's a learning curve, right? I suppose the, the other people you're speaking to, that's not necessarily in English. So I wondered whether that was partially to do with language. Because I suppose when we initially started, there was someone that I was seeing. And they were delighted. I loved the idea. And I sort of said to them... Or just the fact that there was Jello in my life and kind of in the second date, like, what are you looking for? And he said, oh, oh, and he really didn't want to answer. And eventually, after like hours and hours of me not trying to, you know, me not trying to push, it sort of emerged. He was like, I'm actually not looking for a relationship. I, you know, I, I kind of want polyamory. And I was like, oh, great. Well, I've got some news for you. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, I mean, he was quite interested in kind of that becoming a much I don't know, a much wider, you know, a really interconnected relationship in a way that didn't feel quite right for us at the time. But I think now, I suppose this is, yeah, this is the problem with this diff, with this other phase that we're in, that it's more off than on. And the reason that it's more off than on is because I don't want to go and meet people and say, I don't know, and see if I like them and they like me, but then to say, hey, there's other person in my life. And so that's why... Yeah, we're actually yeah, trying the difficult path of not being together. Because it's, it's, it isn't fair to go and meet people who I'm, you know, trying to see if I can have some kind of long-term partnership with, uh, with them knowing that there's someone else in my life. I mean, if they say to that from the beginning, fine, but I don't think... I should meet people on that premise. It's a difficult conversation to have in the first or second date, yeah, you know, when you're not really what, sure what's yeah, going on. Yeah, what are people's responses to that? Yeah, I don't know, because on a second date, when you say that, it's hard to know whether you don't have a third date because you said it, or whether they just <laughs> went off you. <laughs> so anyone you've said that to, you haven't seen ever <laughs> again. Seen them again. So, but I'm not sure how they took it. Need, need a bigger data sample. <laughs> the biological clock is tricky. Who knew? It is tricky. <laughs> it's so unfair. Yeah. It was so nice to talk to you and so insightful. Thanks so much for giving us a chance to talk about it. It was also so great for me to hear Jedo talk about it. And I hope it made sense. <laughs> Yeah, no, this was great. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks Thank you both. Thanks for listening to Multilingual Love. Make sure to subscribe as we'll be releasing new episodes every week. To find out more or get in touch, please look us up at Multilingual Love Podcast. This show was hosted and produced by me, Flo de Schlichting. It was co-produced and edited by me, Willem Olenski. With music by Will Bloomfield and Willem Olenski. Special thanks to Joe Valunas and Piers Olenski.
see you next time. Thank you.